On April 6, 2016, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance hosted a book talk with Luigi Tamba, author of The Government Next Door, Neighborhood Politics in Urban China. Chinese residential communities are places of intense governing and an arena of active political engagement between state and society. In The Government Next Door, Luigi Tamba investigates how the goals of a government consolidated in a distant authority materialize in citizens' everyday lives. Tamba is a senior fellow at the Australian Center on China in the World at Australian National University. The discussion was moderated by Tony Seish, director of the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation and Dae Wu Professor of International Affairs at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more information about the Ash Center, visit ash.harvard.edu. Okay, thank you for coming, uh, everybody. Uh, it's a great pleasure for me to uh, welcome uh, Luigi here to talk to us this afternoon. Uh, I've actually known Luigi for more years than I would care to remember. And uh, Luigi started his work uh, really around questions of labor politics and then has moved on to a number of other issues. Uh, currently is a senior fellow at the Australian National University. And uh, perhaps most importantly for our purposes today, his book, uh, which he's going to talk around some of the themes of the Government Next Door has just won the Levinson Prize uh, for best book in, uh, from the uh, Asian Studies Association uh, here. And so he was recently just out in Seattle receiving that award and also uh, talking. To me, one of the interesting things uh, of this book is that a lot of us have been trying to understand what the dynamics have been with the changing role of the workplace in China. And... Uh, was this really going to lead to a restructuring of the way that uh, the state uh, could interact with society? And I think what Luigi shows in this book is that the picture actually is very nuanced um, and that perhaps there's still more, some more of the uh, traditional collectivity and traditional controls in the poorer areas. But as you begin to come to some of these more uh, upmarket gated communities, uh, the role of the state uh, is less in terms of direct engagement. But I think what is fascinating from Luigi's study is it also shows, though, how the language uh, that the state uses uh, to talk about services, to talk about interactions, is also incorporated into these new communities. So even though they're high-end communities, there's still an, a sense of collectivity, a sense of debate, even argument and dispute taking place within a linguistic framework and a kind of structural framework which is still very much dominated uh, by the party state. Uh, but Luigi, I'll turn it over to you. So, you. please. I'll, yeah. I'll stand up there. This, I have been told that this will start working and amplifying my voice as soon as I, I hope you can all hear me. So first of all, uh, thank you, Tony. Thank you to the um, Ash Center for having me. It's a great pleasure, and it's uh, it's um, it was it's very appropriate for me to be to be finally to be finally here. In fact, it's the first time I've, uh, we've met here in this in this center. We've met in a number of different places, but never here. And so it's it's a great pleasure and a great honor. Um, I, I will speak for about 45 minutes. This is my brief, and uh, I, I hope that we will have uh, as much discussion as we can. So you can, you, I put the, the um, cover of the book there, and I, I do want to talk about the book. It's always very difficult to frame a talk around a book because there are many, way, many more things that I would like to say. 
that I actually can say in 45 minutes. So what I'll try to do is to try to put it in a, in a context of how uh, this emerged and what type of questions I've been asking with this book, then provide you with a brief, a very brief um, uh, introduction to some of its uh, main argument and the structure of the book, and then focus on one of those arguments and one of those those areas of interest. So, so the book is about neighborhoods. This is not uh, it's not difficult to understand. That's the subtitle of the book. Uh, the the title, the government next door, is uh, is a, is an indication that uh, these neighborhoods today are still very much place, sites of governing. There is a lot of governing still going on in a lot of different neighborhoods. And my point of departure was, uh, was one that was, in fact, looking only for the middle class areas, the new middle class residential neighborhoods. But then I ended up realizing that there's much more about the neighborhoods that can tell us not just what the middle class is and what it does, but also um, the ways in which governance has been transformed. And I think in ways that uh, add to our understanding of how China is changing. Um, so a lot has been written about the middle class. And a lot has been written about the changing urban social landscapes and urban governance in China. But what I've tried to do was not so much to change uh, the answers to some of the questions that we've asked about all this, but rather to reset uh, the questions. And not because I have any intention of shifting paradigms, which is something that everyone seems to be willing to do when you write a book, uh, but because it seemed that the question that we were asking about both the middle class and uh, governance were, uh, you know, did not really map onto the realities that I could see in the neighborhoods that I was visiting. So my original intention was that of finding the middle class and so trying to knock at their door in the new gated communities. And I found very different things from what I was expecting. I found, for example, that the middle class was very much the uh, result of uh, uh, policies, was the result of uh, what I call a process of social engineering. But let me go to the questions first. So the first set of questions I think we've been asking is about the middle class itself. And for a very long time, we've asked things like what it, is, what it is, what is the middle class, who is part of the middle class, what does it think about, in particular about democracy, democratization. Um, and, and it seems that these questions are all, all extremely important and extremely interesting, but almost impossible to answer. Think just about the question of size, for example. If you think about the size, well, then you have to admit that it depends on where the boundaries are. You know, you can create any kind of, any size middle class. And to me, sometimes I have the feeling that it depends much more from the point of view of the observer. So it depends on whether you're interested in the middle class because you want to sell them cars or because you want to govern them. So there are two different, very, two very different perspectives and you may want to know different things and, and create different types of middle class. Um, We've also asked uh, what role it plays in, in democratizing China in particular, uh, or better in recent years. We've mostly been asking whether it plays any role at all. And, uh, and clearly, we've become increasingly disenchanted. So this way, I do not ignore these questions. Um, the, the book actually has very strong statements on the fact that we shouldn't uh, expect a middle class revolution in China and that the consumer revolution is something very very different uh, in China. Um, but what I'm trying to do in this case is try to uh, reverse, change the question in, in, in a certain way and try to consider the middle class as a discourse and, a res and the result of a discourse, of a political discourse, um, so rather than an actually existing class. So 
if we do so, so if we think of the middle class as a general discourse, then a lot of other questions seem to come out, with, which I think is really, are really more important and more significant. So who owns and generates the discourse of the middle class? How do people internalize uh, the, the value and the, or the values of the middle classes? Um, why is it created? What values does one attach to the idea of the middle class? What roles do those values play in advancing private interests on one side, but also in protecting or uh, endangering the interests of the communist regime? And how does this idea and this discourse play um, in the daily confrontations? And we know that there are hundreds, actually thousands, uh, um, of conflicts that involve uh, middle class residents. How does that how does that idea of the middle class play in, in, in conflicts that involve private interests in the neighborhoods? So I was trying to change the idea. So in a way to say, well, knowing how big it is is relatively important. We know that it's happening. We know that there is a, a large part of the population that is becoming both wealthier and uh, more aware, uh, better informed, better educated. So this process is clearly going on. Uh, the process of urbanization is also producing part of this. Uh, so let's try to ask some other questions about the middle class. And this is what the book tries to do. So the second set of questions is um, questions about governance. Um, and so we're used to question that investigate the quality of institutional innovation. And you know, I'm, I'm at the Ash Center, so I guess this is one thing that um, we uh, I need to acknowledge. You know, the, and, it, and this is a very important part of what we do. And we've, a lot of what we've done is question the institutional content, if you want, and the capacity for innovation of many of these new neighborhood uh, governing um, um, organizations that in a way are not as sometimes are not as different as the ones that we used uh, before so by asking about the quality um, you know we we are trying to find to we define the neighborhoods as places as those special places where um, where people will get um, um, can find some, some level of uh, experimentation, where they can find a certain level of autonomy, they can experiment with participation, etc. So we see them as the first step, uh, experiment with elections, of course. Uh, we, we've seen these neighborhoods as one of the p potential experiments that can lead to a broader, a broader range in um, um, democratization. We've, uh, uh, so we've asked about participation, we've measured participation, we've measured opinions, we've measured trust, um, we've we mapped the consequences of the, this transition from a downway, the one that Tony was uh, referring to, from a downway society, as, as in China it's called, to a community society, from a, from a, um, from a system that was entirely governed by uh, work units to one that is uh, now uh, in large parts privately governed, um, we look at competition in election. So what we have not really done, I think, or at least what we haven't done enough, and what I was trying to do with the book is understanding the ways in which the, the most pervasive political ideas and the discourses, in particular about social stability, about nationalism, about human quality, about soldier, uh, about exemplarism, uh, become practices of government. Um, so I guess the underlying question, so how these big ideas that are, that are 
present everywhere and that are created by, um, often by the central government and replicated all over the country are actually turning into practices of governing, are actually turning into ways in which people are governed. Um, so the underlying question of the book was mostly um, whether the legitimacy, the surprising, still surprising to many of us, legitimacy of the current regime could be traced back to some of these relationships between the way in which um, uh, the government represents uh, its own idea of, uh, uh, for example, social stability, the nation, etc., and the ways in which this is materialized into practices of government. So neighborhood politics offers the possibility to investigate both these uh, uh, new set of qu sets of questions, if you want, uh, to do this type of research, because residential areas have been certainly sites of institutional innovation, so we can certainly um, uh, work on that, and are still sites of uh, intense governing, even after the massive uh, commercialization and privatization of housing. And they're also sites of the formation of private interests, uh, private interests that are um, not just connect to the fact that property is becoming so central to everyone's, uh, to everyone's life in these days, um, they're connected to the growing importance of consumption, of certain types of consumption, the quality of the consumption, to the desires that emerge and to the ideas of lifestyles that people attach to purchasing a house and, and becoming part of a specific community, of a one community rather than another community. So this choice of becoming part of one community. Um, the other thing the residential areas are, and, and, and this is also very important, they are sites of conflict. So both conflicts between private interests and conflicts between residents and local governments. So we shouldn't, rem shouldn't forget that a lot of the conflicts that uh, are seen in today's cities are conflicts that sometimes involve directly two different private interests, or at least uh, interests that can be defined as private. But certainly the local government has also been uh, the object of a lot of the contestation that has taken place in, in urban neighborhoods. So my inclination is that of uh, studying neighborhoods as political arenas, um, not simply understanding their new institutional arrangements to manage China's population. So in a way, it's, it's always easy to think that, well, you can take a, a, a neighborhood and consider it as a bit of an example, and then from that extrapolate the fact that China's governed in a certain way. I certainly don't have that kind of arrogance. But uh, the, uh, there is certainly something that can be seen at the level of the neighborhood that can explain some of the ideas uh, that I think are uh, central to how uh, China's governed. So, so what do I do? Um, the, the book, rather than uh, being organized around cases, is organized around uh, what, are called, uh, what are called rationalities of government, or governmental strategies, if you want. And, uh, and so there are five different chapters, and each of these chapters deals with one of these. And of course, there is a little bit of overlap in, 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 in the different arguments. So what I wanted to do is just simply briefly going through uh, this, what these um, rationalities actually mean. Uh, to me, and um, and then focus on one in particular, the last one, which I think may be may be of interest and may also be a, a, a bit funnier for for us to deal with. So the first one is social engineering. 
uh, this is for those who don't know, is in Humen. It's got nothing to do with the science of the book, but this, I found it a very interesting, a very interesting connection between the private property on one side and the history, the nationalistic history of, of China, you know, with the broken pipe. Uh, it's in Humen, in Tongwa. So, social engineering. They, this is probably one of the one of the long, longest arguments that I've been making. Social that the, the middle class is nothing. It's not really a result of the market. That there is this, the, the the first generation, at least, of the middle class, is one that has been the result of very significant interventions by the state. And the interventions by the state have focused mostly on, from the late 80s, from the moment when the, um, um, when, um, the, the, the work units started to uh, sell to their own um, employees, their own housing, there's a certain part of the, of the Chinese urban population that has actually been uh, favored very significantly by the, the housing policies. And so there is a, a specific group that has become, has gotten ahead, it's got an early ticket, an early entry ticket into the real estate market. And those initial uh, sales actually made sure that the, uh, the people who were favored in the first place then became also the, uh, the ones who had first access to private property later on. This is just one of the many things that has, have happened. But a lot of the uh, engine of the creation of this first generation of the middle class comes from policies that are targeted mostly at uh, public employees, employees of state-owned enterprises, employees of the government itself, or people who have connections to the government. So without going into uh, too much details about this, and there's a whole chapter, but I don't want to spend all the time on that, um, there, there clearly is an attempt by the government to create a middle class that is not only the easiest to reach is the one that is, you know, it's, it's the easiest target because that's, it's easy to provide them with subsidies, but also a middle class that uh, is somehow attached and connected and was interested, are connected to the government and somehow reliable, a reliable part of, uh, of uh, the middle class. So creating one that is not produced by the market itself, but rather produced by the, um, you know, there are a number of consequences and clearly the new, uh, the, the new generation of the middle class is not uh, having the same type of advantages. I mean, the younger generation is not having the same capacity that uh, their fathers uh, had during the 1990s and the 2000s to actually buy, uh, to purchase an apartment. And so there's, a, the, especially because of the speculation that went on during the 1990s and 2000, and because of the fact that these people had a very easy access to uh, housing, the new generation finds itself in a market uh, that is way too expensive for them. And this, of course, may in the future create problems. So, but the first generation was created this way. So there was um, a, a process of what I call social engineering through subsidized ownership for certain social groups. Um, the second strategy is what I call spatial clustering, where you know, accept the complexity. This is a Google map uh, view of uh, uh, an area in, uh, in northeastern Beijing. And, and it's the idea that a lot of what has actually been built is gated. And the new construction is an idea, reproduces the idea that everything has to be gated. Now, this kind of spatial clustering, this is a bit of a symbolic definition. And it, it, it creates a certain type of lifestyle. It makes sure that people have different types of lifestyles in different gated communities. These are gated communities that sometimes have 6,000 families, so they don't resemble at all the kind of gated communities that we used in, in the West. Um, 
but also uh, the one thing that it allows, which is the one thing that I focus mostly in, 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 in the book, is, is, is it allows the government to tailor governance to different, to different groups, to create different types of governance for different groups. And you know, the, the more you're reliable, the easier it is for you to actually uh, govern yourself, if you want, or to be uh, to be allowed to govern your own uh, specific interests. Um, so th th this this uh, new structure, this Google Map type of structure that you that you can see in 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 the whole of the city, it is divided in little in little uh, um, closed communities, is um, one that. Um, improve the legibility of society. It allows, pe it allows the government to, um, to make sure that different people are governed in different ways. And this is a very efficient way of thinking because clearly certain people, at least according to the government, if the goal is that of maintaining social stability, then certain people need to be governed more than others or governed in different ways. Uh, interestingly, just a few weeks ago, the, uh, the new Xi Jinping government, this may be something that um, will make us think and we'll, we'll see what happens, decided that gated communities are going to be no more. So um, we don't know whether now the idea is that maybe gated communities have also facilitated the advancement of specific interests or very uh, localized interests or interests that can be shielded from the control of the government. So that is a very interesting development that could actually uh, suggest something new. Uh, to me, you know, one of the examples in the book is that um, in this gated community, people are under um, much less control, even on issues that are traditionally very um, strong, like uh, one ch the one-child policy. You know, there was a complaint, was complaint about this gated community as facilitating the infringement of the uh, one-child policy by people with money uh, for reasons uh, that are in a way, especially because a lot of the one-child policy was subcontracted to private management companies, which is a very interesting um, aspect of the privatization of governance. Um, the, the third rationality has to do with communities that are much poorer. So a lot of what has been written about governance in China has suggested this idea that uh, China is going towards a neoliberal uh, system where uh, you know, the, the, this, the, that governing happens from a distance and that governing happens uh, through the capacity of individuals to govern themselves. And this is all true. This is uh, all happening. But it's not happening, ha happening everywhere. And so this is, this is in Shenyang. This is possibly the most expensive thing that they have in their community because it's a very poor community. At the time, it's 2006, as it says over there, at the time there were uh, still uh, close to 20% unemployment in Shenyang. This was a place with a lot of unemployment. But the one thing that the government invested on was a monitor the monitoring of the community. Now, this, is, this costs a lot of money. It costs also in terms of uh, maintaining. And uh, uh, in two years, the, in, this, um, in this monitoring system, which just controls one community, they stopped one crime, which is uh, uh, one uh, stolen bicycle. So that is as much as this actually you know, operates. And um, so it doesn't operate much, but it does produce that idea that there is control. And, you know, and having control in the community is very important, and no, people know that they, will, should not, they, they should behave. So what, what one realizes going, going to places like Shenyang is that while the middle classes 
uh, have their own sort of private governance and they can have their conflicts and they can have, um, uh, you know, they can defend their interests and they can have, uh, you know, a, an easier way with the one-child policy and, you know, and, and they, they have their own representative bodies in the, you know, they represent the interest of uh, the homeowners. When you go to poorer communities, then the visibility of the state becomes very high. And so you have much larger neighborhood committees, you have many more people, you have many more, um, um, m a much more present state. And, and so uh, this, to me, challenges a little bit the idea that everything in China is now going towards an, a neoliberal way of, of governing. And, you know, and, and this, this is a discussion that I hope will continue. I guess it also affected the title of the book. You know, when I say next door, I probably also uh, try to refer to some of the arguments on, uh, on governing from a distance. And, and I call this micro-governing. I call it mi micro-governing because it, it, it really is about governing the, uh, the, the more specific things uh, um, about everyday life. And, and there is this, this uh, interesting overlapping between the role of the unemployed, if you want, in these communities and the role of the, um, of the cadre, who is generally an unemployed as well. And so, um, in a way, becoming a cadre in this, uh, in, in this community is also a way to get back into the system and to maintain a certain level of livelihood. And it creates a number of different uh, complex uh, uh, issues, of course. Um, and the next one, which clearly I haven't... I pressed the wrong button. No, there you go. It's, um, is what I call containing conflicts. So there are a lot of conflicts. So th these are, these are, this is a conflict in a, in a community in, uh, uh, also in northeastern Beijing. It's inside the compound. Right? So uh, everything happening inside the compound is fine. I've seen a lot of violence taking place inside the compounds, uh, within the walls, and I've seen the police doing nothing, nothing at all to, against their violence. Um, the, um, most of the criticism in here, in this case, it is about developers. It's not directly about the government. Although, in this case, the developer was also, you know, the, the head of the development company was also uh, a vice minister. So, you know, you can always argue that there's a little bit of both. Um, there's a, there are lots of conflicts. But what is happening is that while there is an increase in conflicts, and these conflicts um, do affect uh, potentially uh, social stability, the scope of this conflict remain limited, uh, and the size of these conflicts remain limited, and they remain separated from one another. So the, the capacity that this kind of physical arrangement as well, you know, the space, the special uh, structuring that uh, had been, has taken place, to contain conflicts is, is also very significant. Um, and it's not just the space in itself, is the idea that by belonging to a certain community one can be as free as possible, as free as one can imagine to say things about what happens in that community, but should never try to say something about things that happen elsewhere or about the more systemic problems that this, uh, that this system has. Um, and this is, this is where conflicts are an interesting site, I think, for uh, the analysis of, um, of the languages as well, as Tony was saying. There's a, there's, there's a convergence, interestingly, there's a convergence of languages, of, of the language, of the repertoires of these uh, different groups with ideas uh, that, that somehow connect some of those that I told you before. You know, for example, nationalism is one that comes 
comes out a lot. And groups that identify themselves as middle class, they call themselves as, they call themselves, uh, as you know, the cornerstone of society, or they define themselves as, uh, as the ones who will produce a stronger China in the future. So there, there's a lot of reliance on, that, on those kind of language. And, and this is, this is a, always a bit of a controversial point, because one could say, well, it's, in, it's a completely strategic way of doing things. So you use the language of the government because that allows you to actually um, reproduce your interests or to advance your interests. And you do it at a time of conflict in particular. So you frame your own, uh, um, your own understanding of the issue with um, the, a language that allows you to avoid repression, but also that allows you to um, advance your interest in a legitimate way, so provide legitimacy to, to yourself. Um, and this, this is all true, but I, I find this sometimes just um, thinking that this type of um, um, uh, attitudes are only strategic seems to me to miss part of the point. It seems to me that there's a lot going on that is very structural. That is uh, the way in which certain conflicts are uh, are being um, uh, constructed, and that and that there is uh, a tendency to uh, to dismiss uh, the uh, the ideological or the you know the, this this linguistic uh, convergence. Uh, whereas I think we should uh, we should understand it as uh, in a way as providing very significant advantages to for the government to actually govern this type of conflict. So if the conflicts are uh, framed in the language of the government, then on one side they produce advantages for the people who have the grievances, but on the other they also allow the government to say, well, okay, as long as it is framed in this way, then we don't need to repress it because it doesn't it doesn't affect uh, the um, um, it doesn't affect the stability or, or the system. You know, it's not a systemic criticism. And so they, I think, I think I'm, I'm arguing in favor of a, of a greater weight to the language of ideology and to, 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 to not, not to pretend to dismiss any of this ideological language as uh, completely, um, um, you know, simply an invention of the government that people just. Uh, take on for their own for their own very specific purposes. I think there is something very deep and very and much more uh, much more specific, much more um, much deeper in, in in this thing. Okay, um, then the last one is what I call exemplarism, and uh, this is where I want to spend the last fifteen minutes of uh, uh, today. Um, so. When I talk, exemplarism is a, is, is a word we've, we've seen in a number of, uh, uh, you know, we've known about, we know about models, we know there's a tradition in, uh, in socialist China to use models and to use exemplarism, etc. And, and in a way, the capacity of the Communist Party to uh, maintain legitimacy has relied on sort of two aspects, aspect, you know, the material aspects, economic growth and wealth and the strength of its military, etc. on one side, but on the other also, um, uh, it's, it has relied on a civilizing project, so-called, what we call a civilizing project, that is sometimes embodied by the idea of the spiritual, you know, the jingsheng. Um, spiritual growth and increasing personal quality of the population, etc. So, um, to cite uh, Berger Bakken's work on on exemplarism, um, there are two. So he identifies the, these two, the material and the spiritual, as two different aspects of civilization. Um, so, and 
and I, here I quote, roughly material civilization represents the growth aspect of the model and spiritual civilization the social control aspect. So there is, you know, it's always important in everything that we do. And if you think about even laws and uh, decrees that you sometimes see coming down from the center, there's always a moral element. There's always a spiritual element. There's, it's never really just about the best policy. It's always about the, the most moral policy as well. So th there certainly is uh, something uh, in, in this. So the goals, if, you th if we think in this terms, then the goals for material growth are relatively easy to set. So it's easy to say how much the economy needs to grow, how much land we need to preserve, all of this material, all these water um, limits or uh, quotas, if you want, are easy to set. These targets are easy to set. Production, growth, personal wealth, the amount of, oops, the amount of square meters uh, of housing that are going to be built, all of these things are easy to set. But what about the spiritual? I mean, it's, it's on one side you want to achieve it, on the other side it's very difficult to benchmark. Uh, and, and clearly the government has been going through a number of different ways to try to benchmark exactly that. Um, and the other, the other problem that you sometimes have is that the spiritual benchmarking may impact on the material benchmarking. So if you want economic growth, you may actually need to um, um, let some of your morality go, or the other way around. If you want to be moral, you may want to let go of some of your economic growth. So, um, so the desire of the government to to benchmark um, um, morality, if you want, or uh, the spiritual, um, is at the origin of all the campaigns that define civilized behavior. You know, ideas of civility and self-improvement still uh, are, are very prominent not only in general propaganda but also in a lot of the, la a lot of the language and practices of government you know uh, they have produced ideas like moral regulation and social management all of these all have a very strong uh, moral uh, moral element and these are all integral parts of the attempts of the government to maintain uh, social order and stability so the middle class is, in a way, a useful way, a discourse of the middle class, not necessarily the middle class as it is, because we know that you know, there are lots of bad examples there. It's one of the ways in which benchmarking uh, morality or benchmarking uh, civilization is, uh, um, is happening. So promoting the discourse of a very idealized, uh, high-quality middle class urban middle class in particular, serves three uh, main purposes of government. So there's a general purpose that is that of making subjects that are both autonomous enough to be good consumers. You need to be autonomous in order to be able to make choices in the market. You need to, you need to be able to do that. But on the other side, also responsible enough to contribute actively, and not just, not just passively, to maintaining social order. So this is, this is the type of citizen that, uh, the type of ideal citizen that China wants to achieve. And, and it's very difficult, it's not, it's not easy to do, but having a middle class subject that can be displayed and can be used to, be, to, to produce this type of uh, uh, ideal is, uh, is very important. Uh, and then two more specific um, um, goals that this, this idea can produce. One is exactly the benchmarking of aspirations of what people should try to achieve. So aspirations and behaviors happen through exemplarity. And thirdly, which I think is in the end possibly the one thing that continues to, um, uh, to 
to produce this kind of discourse is, is the idea of creating value in the market. Um, creating value in a market where the state still controls most assets by associating the quality of the middle class with the material worth of public and private goods, and in particular land. So you may know where I'm going. I mean, this is something that we've had, you know, we've had discussions about um, gentrification for a long time. But having a middle class that can actually gentrify a place is a way to increase the value of places and the value of things that are owned by the government. So, uh, so this, this is a very important thing. So let me just uh, go a bit deeper into this. Um, first of all, the middle class as a, as a pivotal player in, the, uh, uh, in China's governmental discourse. This is something that we find everywhere. And I'll give you just a few examples just to, be, uh, to try to avoid be too verbose. Um, but um, on the idea of self-government, for example, there's this promotion of self-government in, in China, which is you know, one of the reasons why we've been thinking about neoliberalized neo communities. The idea of self-governing is, uh, um, um, is not for everyone. So um, communities are seen as, and I hear a quote from, from government, uh, from part of the book where I refer to government uh, um, um, material, strategic special units in the construction of a harmonious society. Um, but self-government is not for everyone. It's only possible, and this is a quote, only possible where there is an economic foundation and, and it's not suitable for poorer areas. So those who go rich first and have a privileged position in society will need to take more responsibility for building a harmonious society. So you see here the middle class being portrayed as the ones who actually take responsibility. You know, with great power and great advantages come great responsibility, would Spider-Man say. Um, and this is opposed to what, uh, what the same government says about weak groups who are seen as incapable of governing themselves. They're not, they need to be governed in, in a certain way and they are in need of state paternalism. And, and this, is, this, this is something that is reproduced in, in many ways. The other thing is that uh, the middle class is very differently from what we normally attribute to the middle class, you know, this force for change and force for transformation and force for democratization, etc. The way that it's seen by the, by the Chinese government is completely the opposite. And here's a quote from, the, uh, um, from a publication from, of the Police Academy, which is uh, quite uh, striking to me when I first read it, which says, which, which says, our country needs the middle stratum because it is the political force necessary to stability. It is the regenerati regenerative force of production. It is the scientific force behind creative production. It is the moral force behind civilized manner. It is the force necessary to eliminate privilege and curb poverty. Um, I avoid the, la the, la the last sentence says it is everything, which is um, in fact a slightly disturbing. Um, but um, uh, it, I think, I think you, you get the message here. The message here is that we need the middle class to actually perform all of these things. We need them because they are, this is the way, you know, a, a, middle class, a middle class society is also a society that preserves the current regime and, uh, you know, and, and advances all, all of these different uh, discourses, both on uh, morality and on uh, material uh, growth. So it's completely the opposite of what many outside of China have believed for a long time, you know, and um, we know that the government has an interest in portraying it that way, um, but also it has a project behind it. I think, I think what I'm trying to do um, 
with the book is to show that it's not just an idea, it's not just they're trying to take the middle class to their side, they've actually produced the middle class, they've created it, they have, they have uh, given them house, houses, they've given them interests, etc. So they have been uh, advancing this project in a very, uh, in a very coherent, coherent way. Um, okay, um, one, of the, one of the things that middle class has benchmarked for its behaviors, and uh, so I, I want to give you a, a couple of uh, um, part, a couple of little parts of the book where I, 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 I show how this happens. You know, as you know, there are lots of textbooks and there are lots of behavioral textbooks uh, in, in China. The, there's this, this one has attracted my attention in particular. So um, in its strive to improve the image of the city and the civility of its people before the World Expo, the um, Shanghai Municipal Committee for the Construction of Spiritual Civilization, and there's one in every city, but there's also, of course, one at the center, um, uh, published a book entitled How to Be a Lovely Shanghainese, Instructions for the Shanghai Citizen. Um, so there are a number of ways in which the spirit of Shanghai people differs from that of people in other, part, in other cities. So Shanghainese, for example, are said to, be, uh, to like quarrels, to be parsimonious and cold-hearted, and you know, a number of other things. Uh, but then it proceeds to define uh, the moral standards you know, they, uh, that, are, uh, that are to be embedded in an urban Shanghainese, at the center of which there are a set of behaviors, things that people shouldn't do, you know, the seven don'ts, uh, because morality is clearly about uh, how you behave. So don't spit, don't litter, don't damage public property, don't destroy public greenery, don't dress in messy clothes, don't smoke in public spaces, don't, uh, don't use coarse languages, etc. Um, and then it goes on to reevaluate the idea of relationships, relationship with the other sex, relationship with your family members and with your neighbors, uh, which of course is relevant uh, as well for uh, the type of morality that is created inside these communities. Um, uh, but later in the text, under the rubric of civilizing education, uh, readers are provided with the most detailed description of how to dress section how to wear a western suit for example It'll tell you the difference between a two-piece suit and a three-piece suit which is very important as you can to be a shanghainese in particular um, importance of having the appropriate shirt which i of course uh, referred to today um, how to stand how to sit properly how to behave in a public toilet the civilized way to travel on a bus to drive to address other people to shake hands to ask and give direction to be a good guest and so on um, so clearly there is an interest of the community to improve the image of the city by trying to standardize Shanghai's behaviors in anticipation of the uh, World Expo. But the result of this process is also to set the behavior of the well-educated as the standard for everyone. So there is, there is a clear, there's a clear benchmarking that takes place through the things that the, the well-educated and the urban Shanghainese middle class is doing. So, uh, the image, and I'll have another three or four minutes, if I may. Uh, the image of um, high-quality middle class is, uh, is also, atta also attach attaches to it itself to, uh, to this more material uh, process of uh, urbanization and becomes a way to create value, as I was telling you before. Um, so I call this, um, I don't know whether it's appropriate, but I call this sort of a, almost a contagious uh, middle class, a middle class that, that once there's a Midas touch of the middle class that creates value by being, touching, and doing things. So let me, again, this is the last example I want to make, which is from, uh, uh, is from Chengdu. Um, 
about how having this middle class has this very significant, having this idea of the middle class has very significant uh, material impact on uh, real estate markets. So there's a Chengdu newspaper, it's called Housing Weekly, very popular among homeowners, and um, um, because it's a very sort of hands-on approach to real estate, people want to know exactly where to buy, what to buy, you know, said to be on the side of the consumers, etc. Clearly, they're owned by the government. Um, so in 2004, the Weekly launched a campaign to transform the existing perception of Chengdu's eastern district, uh, because they've always been perceived as backward, poor, inhospitable, and, you know, and so they, this campaign wanted to improve the attractiveness both to developers and to buyers. Um, so, and so the... Um, this campaign was, you know, or even had a slogan, said Go East. And the activities that they tried to develop were uh, included um, excursion into the district uh, to discover its potential, public initiatives and leisurely gatherings, including uh, uh, something called Eastern District's Middle Class Summer Olympics, which is you know, sort of a, a big game uh, idea. Um, and also included a, a number of articles that were published in the weekly where this idea of the transformative power of the middle class really comes out very clearly. So let me quote from it. Uh, with its material and suja advantage, so the quality advantages, Chandu's middle class already represents the search for a lifestyle based on virtuous character, on healthy living, moral enlightenment, and dynamic practices. The eastern suburbs which offer the potential for a better quality of life are entering the line of sight of the middle class and this is enough justification to expect that they will become Chengdu's middle class heaven of freedom where the high skies make the birds fly and the vast seas make the fish jump. So here there's a very clear, there's very clear connection between the fact that the middle class moves into these places and the fact that the value of the place goes up. Um, and this is happening in a number of other cases. There's another case here where I, uh, where a, a developer uh, who had purchased a specific uh, uh, plot of land that was actually a garbage dump, decided to organize a number of activities to bring the middle class over and to make sure that it's slowly transformed, sort of providing this Midas touch to, to that piece of land. And in fact, it, it, be it became very successful and uh, the houses were sold Oops, was sold for a very high price. So conclusions. Am I, are you going to break my legs? No. Okay. Um, conclusion. Um, so I guess one of the things that I'm trying to say in the book is that um, that I see the middle class more as a discourse. Um, because um, and 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 because this discourse becomes useful to benchmark behavior and to produce values in the process of urbanization. Um, so in this sense, it's more than simply a propaganda argument. Morality, self-improvement, behavioral exemplarity serve uh, the goals of government as well as those of economic actors and private citizens defending their rights. Uh, they also allow activists involved in conflicts to use moral arguments and advance their requests. Um, so as such, the transition of China to, towards, towards an urban middle-class society happens not as much as part of a transition to a more pluralist society, 
but rather remains framed within the idea of self-improvement and a commitment to social order of the nation. So this is a, this is a very different uh, approach, it's a very different way of thinking of a middle class society. So, and finally, I guess the, the thing that I want to say is that I, I know that I've been pretty pessimistic about the capacity of the middle class to produce change, but I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely. I guess what I'm pessimistic about is its capacity to um, define or, or you know, to address the institutional issue of democratizing China, to address, to, to become a political force that will, will push for democratization in China. I think we're more likely to see um, groups in the middle class and civil society to become much more involved in, in changing very specific things that may, over time, result in a, in a cumulative transformation of China. So I do believe in the, in the transformative power, uh, but I still think that much of it, for the moment, remains uh, economic. Thank you. Thanks, Luigi. It was very rich. It, it, uh, it struck me as you were talking in, in many ways, well, first of all, so much for Barrington Moore. Uh, <laughs> but I guess secondly, it's interesting, it fits in with a line of writing about how in many ways the state in China or the party in China has created groups that it sees as crucial to itself. And obviously it did that first with the working class in the 50s that you worked on earlier. But then you see that one of the things that it did when it lacked capital to develop, it turned to Hong Kong. And it turned Hong Kong millionaires into billionaires. And because it was safe, because they knew that they would provide the capital for development, but they would never challenge the state. And then in a way, parts of your argument, it seems to me, follow on from the work of people like Kelly Tsai and Bruce Dixon, because the way it's manufactured its own private sector has been in a rather similar vein. It, it's kind of created uh, a set of private entrepreneurs, which, you know, the middle class is seen as a force of change, the private sector is seen as a force of change, yet it's allowed it to be created or positively created itself um, a group which isn't going to challenge its authority because it's so embedded in the language, in the structures, and the connectivity uh, of the state. And so I think this is fascinating in that you're kind of looking at another, you know, key segment of society that people do look to for change. But I thought it was fascinating the way you, you talk about the idea of the social engineering, the manufacturing of the group, and particularly the first movers, as you said. I, I thought that was uh, fascinating. But anyway, the, the floor is open for people for questions or comments they have on this. Please take the microphone because there's a podcast being made and we need the microphone for your comments. And let us know who you are and, and what your comment or question is. Uh, yelling. Hi, thanks. Um, my name is Yeling. I'm a PhD student here. Uh, thanks for a fascinating talk. Um, it totally makes sense to me that uh, your argument that you know uh, a middle class or any group of people who become more wealthy or prosperous and more well off through the existing system have no reason to upset the structures of that system. But there is still underlying um, a social contract un underneath this all. And what happens when the social contract is betrayed between the, what the middle class perceives as, you know, um, 
uh, rightful governance behavior by the state. So we can think about industrial accidents like that which happened in Tianjin recently, high-speed train crashes, or even something much more pervasive like urban pollution. So what happens in, in situations like that? And you know, how does the state respond at the local level? And then I guess my tag-on question to that is what you've, what you've just been describing makes sense for the first generation of the middle class. So what happens to the second generation? In fact, the two questions, I think, are very connected, very much related to one another. Um, it's, uh, there's always, first of all, I, I won't be able to predict the future, but um, um, to me, one of the real problems about making the connection between local activism and a more systemic criticism, or what you say, you know, the, you know reacting to the, um, the breach of the social contract um, is one that is still very much controlled and is still very difficult to do. Um, and so th there is that sort of clearly you know, repressive element uh, of activities that go beyond. And, and in order to make a case for against uh, the breach of, um, of, this, of, of the uh, social contract, then you do need to have that kind of connectivity. And the middle class does, has two difficulties. One is that it's very fragmented. It doesn't really have, you know, it's, it's not really a class, that's what I'm trying to say. But on the other side also has, uh, knows exactly what the limitations are of trying to expand activism beyond the specific issues. Um, so this is, this is one of the ways in which it, it becomes easy for the government then to react in ways um, that contain the conflicts to a local level and also continue to blame the, lo the localities. If there is someone to blame in the government, and it's certainly you can be certain that it's going to be someone at the, at the local level that will lose, who will lose their job. And, um, and this, has been, this has been part of the traditional way of governing of, of, of uh, the Chinese, of the Chinese Communist Party, but also it's been, uh, um, I think it's, it's a very effective way of doing it by um, pre preventing things from really r rising up to, to higher levels. The, why is it connected to the other? It's connected to the other because the one thing that could uh, upset this balance is, if, especially for this type of people um, who rely you know, for their wealth, they rely very much on housing and property. Uh, is if there is a, a, a bursting of the real estate bubble, uh, and if that is national. I mean, we know that we expect if, if any bursting of the bubble happens, that it will probably happen city by city or in specific places, etc. But this is the one thing where people have not just a social contract or a, or a moral contract with the government, they also have their own livelihood invested in. Um, a lot of this first generation middle class are so over-invested in, in real estate that if something happens, I mean, the consequences for their own livelihood can be really dramatic. Um, and the other part is the, jun the junior, and called the second generation of the middle class, is not, uh, is not, is, 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 is not seeing the future for themselves as homeowners or as uh, property uh, owners, etc. Because all of the advantages that were um, provided to the first generation are no longer there. So if you if you entered into uh, even a state-owned work unit after 1998, you probably wouldn't have had a, a home allocated to you. So th this is you know 
just if you just look at that kind of moment, the watershed moment of 1998 and, and after, then you then you will find that there's a whole generation after that had much greater difficulties, and uh, the prices have gone up and up and up because the first generation has, con has continued to buy, and they've continued to buy beyond their means because they were buying cheaper housing, you know, economy housing that was subsidized by the government, uh, sometimes circumventing the rules and getting even further discount. They had they had access to uh, very cheap credit through their work unions, etc. So all of those things are no longer there. Uh, so you know, even the cheap credit you have access through your employers uh, uh, is now very limited, and it only works if, if you've worked in the company for a very long time. So all of, all of these things suggest that this new generation is is in a much weaker position, and will probably not be as aligned as the previous generation with the government. Um, we still don't see sort of an aggregation that we could say, we could call a middle class revolution. But if there is a significant bursting of the bubble, then things may actually become more complex to manage by the government. I don't know what, you know, that, that respond to your question. You know, another interesting thing related to the first part of Yelling's question is, when you talked about um, the movement now to taking down the walls, that could produce a dramatically different situation because you talked about the violence within the compounds and the conflicts within the compounds and that you could more or less say anything while you're in the compound. But if the walls go, that becomes public space. And then, you know, will the public security intervene? Will it now be seen as sort of anti-government activities or not? I mean it's potentially extremely dangerous uh, as a maneuver. On the one hand, yes, well, let's open them up so perhaps we get more control. I mean, they blamed it a lot on traffic flows and technical things and so on. And, you know, as a lot of citizens replied, well, why don't you tear down the walls around the government offices and, <laughs> you know, first before you start tearing down our walls. But it, it, it is, it's a potentially fascinating situation. One, yes, we might be able to get in and control what's happening in those spaces. But on the other hand, if you go in and control those spaces, maybe you set off chains of violence that you hadn't really anticipated. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's one of the most, I must admit, most surprising and uh, um, also suggestive uh, um, policies that have been suggested recently. The, the idea that all of them, first of all, simply the, the engineering difficulties of doing this, considering that most the entire cities, you know, the entire Beijing is walled, so you have to, not just to open the gates, but, you know, tear down the walls. I don't really see how they're going to do it. And it's just, it's just, but, you know, they can do it, and probably they will. Uh, but the, uh, besides that, the, interestingly, it's not, it's not the homeowners who are willing to do this. So they don't really want a more open type of city. They want a closed city and they, they want to maintain that. And it and I think, you know, and the justification there is as much as, you know, the ridiculous one on the traffic is on one side, but the justification that as ridiculous by the homeowners is that they want security. And yeah. they know that these oh walls yeah. will maintain security for them. To me, it's, it's mu as much more to do with maintaining the value of their property, to be completely honest, because if it is closed, if it is enclosed, then it, it remains an exclusive type of uh, development, whereas if it is open, it's just a development like any other. Um, and, uh, you know, and these are communities that are almost clubs, where you have memberships, you have, uh, you have the gym, you have the swimming pool, uh, your kids sometimes go to school inside the compound, etc. So all of, all of these things matter, and when you take down the walls, then this, this goes away. Um, 
but uh, I, I, I think that the, the only thing that I can, the only explanation that I have is the idea of increasing patrolling and social yeah. control. Um, the only problem that the government faces is that a lot of the control has been done by private companies right. so far, and apparently they're expecting that to continue to happen, but either the government takes over the cost, the extra cost of doing this, how do you do it without a wall, uh, or um, somehow uh, they have to do it themselves. Mm -hmm. And so uh, this, this is a very significant cost. I mean, one of the advantages of having gated communities governed by private uh, management companies is also that it's cheaper for the government sure. because they, they don't do to do any of the work of the, of the keeping the peace work. Uh, and uh, at least at that level, well, it's not really police work, but you know, just maintaining the, maintaining the peace in, in the communities. And who's going to do that? Thank you. I'm Isa Ding. I'm from the Gov Department, the Government Department. Um, my question is: I think this is super interesting that you mentioned how the government treats richer neighborhoods and poorer neighborhoods differently. And I was wondering if you could talk more about whether people, uh, richer people living in richer neighborhoods and people living in poorer neighborhoods, actually behave differently. Um, because on one hand, you have a middle class that is richer, more educated, more articulate. Um, they're more entitled. Um, and on the other hand, um, you also mentioned they have more to lose and they are less governed. They are less controlled. So is the government smart by trusting the middle class uh, more? Um, so do we actually observe a difference in how people behave um, in these neighborhoods, um, both because of um, you know, their own socioeconomic background um, and because of how they're actually governed? That's, uh, yeah, that's, there, there are lots of differences, of course. You know, there are, you know, lifestyles are very different. And as you may know, when, uh, when um, you buy, you purchase an apartment in a gated community or in, in apartment compound, um, you, you sold a lifestyle as well. So, you know, you, you become member of, of a specific community, which most of the time is a consumer community. So, you know, they, the management companies or the developers sell you that apartment and sell you a specific way of consuming. And, uh, and a, lot, a lot of the developers have become really um, popular for selling those lifestyles, for attaching those type of lifestyles to, uh, to the sales of these apartments. And so that, that is one aspect. There's even one uh, developer that is cited in the, uh, in, the, in the book that has tried to, uh, um, to patent its uh, neighborhood lifestyle. So, you know, the, to, to, to put, a, to put his, his trademark on the, um, on, on the lifestyle and the type of uh, activities that are provided to, to. So that's just to say that it, it is expected that you go and live in a certain, in a certain uh, neighborhood um, designed by a certain developer and your lifestyle will be that. Um, but on the other side, the type of behaviors, I think the type of behaviors you're talking about is more um, that in, in these areas there's much more contention. Uh, it's, much, um, it's much easier for people to, uh, to have conflicts with anyone both with your neighbor because it's parked his car on, on the grass uh, or with, uh, uh, with the local private management company because uh, they raise the price of uh, the management fee or simply because, you know, like you see here, this is, this is an example of uh, a group, of, they, they're just tearing down a wall inside the, um, inside the compound where they are 
um, that you know that this this area was supposed to be a garden, and it was turned into a parking lot. And so after a lot of uh, um, contention with the developer, they decided to just pull down the push down the wall, and they did. And you know, I don't I don't have the other photos with me, but the, so the the whole thing was uh, was destroyed, and then. A new garden. They built their own new garden. Um, you know, it doesn't say much about the quality of walls in China, so you know that could be could be rather uh, disturbing. But these kind of things happen, and people are going to extreme lengths to try to protect. In this case, it's really about protecting the things that they've purchased. You know, I've, I've bought it, and this is what you promised me, and now I have a parking lot instead of a garden. This is this is not cool. And this type, of, there are hundreds and hundreds of this type of. Um, um, uh, of conflicts in poorer communities, especially in communities that are used to be deeply and, and um, strongly governed by uh, by the Communist Party, you will find much less of that. Um, the the presence of the um, uh, the presence of the cadre is uh, obviously um, making sure that it never degenerates to something like this. But it doesn't mean that there is no conflict there. You know people will probably use different formats. For example, in Shenyang, there's um, um, a lot of the uh, opposition, if you want, or the uh, grievances just spill out into, not in the neighborhoods where they're too controlled, into the parks. And so you find uh, you know, in Shenyang, there's, there, there used to be uh, every afternoon, there's a, there's a so-called, um, I think it's called Democracy Forum, you know, with uh, former workers who meet and just curse the government, basically. That's what they do. They do nothing else. And every now and then they go and protest at the government offices, etc. So this is, this is um, uh, a very, um, uh, very, very, I don't know, it's, it's, it's one of the ways in which you, you show that on one side, contention is contained within the walls, and contained within the community. On the other side, you have uh, uh, communities who need to go outside to at least try to maintain some of the, because of the control that is taking place in, in the communities themselves. Um, both of them are quite unsuccessful in changing the government, in fact. But, you know, there, is, uh, there certainly is a difference in behavior that is also driven by the, uh, not just by the nature of the people, but also by the nature of governance that you have. Hi, thanks again. Uh, so Kyle Jarris, I'm a postdoc at the Ash Center here. So um, this is really interesting, and I was hoping you could talk just a little bit about the international context. And so, you know, some of the story you're telling it, it seems strikingly similar to what we see in a lot of settings in the U.S., uh, you know, in Latin America. And so I'm curious if you see this more as a story of convergence with sort of some, some of these patterns of urban development, suburbanization, and, and so forth around the world, or whether you think there are elements that are really you know, this distinctively Chinese, are you more struck essentially by the way China is converging with what we see elsewhere or by the way China is diverging? Uh, you know, there could be different forces or agencies that bring about some of the same results in these different settings. I mean, but, you know, th some of th these ideas about kind of consumer morality, public control, the difference between these, these kinds of gated communities or kind of neoliberal spaces and then the heavily policed sort of urban areas that are predominantly lower class. I mean, this, this sounds like America, too. So, so <laughs> tell me what you think about that. Um, yeah, no, that, that's, that's a very interesting observation. It's, um, uh, look, I think, I think you have to think about the starting point. So my starting point was that um, I, I wanted to find 
the you know the sort of mythological beast of the middle class, which I think is you know, I've used the word so many times I don't even know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, but uh, and I wanted to find it where they actually are and where their interests are and, and where they are active, right? So to see whether they are exactly whether they're acting the way that we would expect them to act. And and I think when I got there, um, I realized when I saw got there when I started l looking at this n neighborhoods I realized that there's um, that I think we had a there was a hype uh, connected to the idea that uh, China's becoming wealthier China's becoming um, better educated it's becoming more urban and all of these things that would have led to certain type of attitudes and uh, so I was I was expecting to find you know, sort of an, an alternative view of the world in, in among these this groups. And I didn't. So that was the one thing that struck me in a way. So that, that the, the, these, are, these are not places that generate alternatives. They're not places that uh, produce, uh, maybe, they, maybe they produce the capacity to engage with others. That's, that's one of the things. So think of these communities as something different from what used to be in your work unit. In your work unit, you would be uh, living together with the people you're also working with. Now you can choose where to live or sort of can choose where to live and uh, depending on how much money you have. And you try to live with people who are of the same type, you know, sometimes of the same quality or sometimes of the same, in, but not necessarily the people you work with. And so there's this separation of workplace and, and, uh, and living spaces. And this is something that is new for China. So a lot of these people um, you have to think that there was no real estate market until the early 90s, basically. So there was n no one owning apartments until the late 80s. And now 80% of the urban registered population and more are actually owning properties. So I think those things are, are things that, s that suggest that there's something different from what is happening in the US. And also the fact that it's more guided, if you want. Clearly, it is, it is a, an indulgence to, to neoliberalization because, you know, there are many things, as, as always, the Chinese know, know the things that they need to, you know, that they need to learn and the things that they don't want to learn. And one of them is certainly that neoliberalization allows you to govern certain places in ways that you don't, where you don't need to spend too much money to govern them. Um, and, uh, but on the other side, yeah, I'm, I'm not completely sure that, um, that it's the same as in the U.S. So you have urban, in the U.S. you have urban spaces that are unregulated, if you want, and therefore the police comes in. So that's, that's where you have, the, in these cases, you have regulated poor places. So you have communities where the old, mid, old, old um, working class is um, living, still living. And one of the things that struck me the most is that while you see convergence in the middle class communities in the type of language that they use, when you go to, the, to this community, you, also see, you see this not the same type, but also a convergence. So you see a convergence between the uh, working class uh, people who felt abandoned by the state and the state that says we need to save the working class. So the intervention that you find in the Northeast is especially in well now a bit less, but in the last couple of decades there has been in, uh, during the restructuring of the SOEs, the government intervened both financially and 
if you want, with a linguistic repertoire to say, you are the pioneers of the state, you need to be protected. And so there's, there was this rhetoric of saving the, middle cl the uh, working class and the working class reacting exactly in the same way, using exactly the same type of language and, and becoming much more dependent on the state than they, than they used to be. So I think that that is where I see a bit of a difference and, uh, and also where I see the importance of this, um, of this spatial um, structures that are that are governing our cities, but you know, as you say, I mean, it, it does sound a little bit like the U.S. Yes, th thank you. And I'm Yong uh, Dongshan from uh, postdoctor from the University of Oslo, Norway. And uh, thank you very much, very much for the uh, wonderful um, presentations. My question is, how is the actual um, autonomy um, of the com uh, middle class? in the community. On the one hand, we will see that uh, um, many um, PX uh, programs, uh, many com community middle class will um, protest against uh, the such kind of PX projects. But actually, lots of uh, lending companies um, give the money to the local uh, communities to push away against the government. But and, and meanwhile, we will see on the, on the country that the, the local government also make use of the citizens to relocate some protein uh, industries. So it seems like uh, the, communi com uh, the, the middle class in the communities is always be used for the private companies or state-owned companies as well as the uh, local government. How their uh, autonomy, autonomy is or how is their um, own interest is can be expressed by themselves independently. That is my question. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that they would like to express it uh, a bit more. And th there is, there's quite a bit of, uh, as you say, I mean, especially in, in very large public cases and grievances that bring people together, there is a lot of, uh, there's a lot of connection and there's a lot, especially on the internet and through forums and, you know, the WeChat, etc. So all of, all of those things happen um, and there's, there's a lot happening uh, in, in this respect. I guess if I wanted to define what type of autonomy the middle class has, which seems to be your original question, um, then I would say it's, again, I will probably go back to say that there is, um, that it's contained autonomy. That it's uh, that it's contained, uh, and you know, in my, in the case that I look at, it's contained spatially. It's contained by by the space where they live, but it's also contained by the fact that they belong to a certain community, and by the fact that other people will, you know, sort of control their behaviors, and uh, that they will have, a, um, you know, they will have a management company, and that management company will have a connection with the um, with the neighborhood committees, etc. So. Um, so, but, but in itself, it's contained within within the space, within the the physical space of the community, but also within the, if you want, the ideal space of uh, their own interests. So as long as it's their own interest, then they're, you know, they're entitled to defend it, and uh, and they sometimes become very violent even in this respect. When they move out then it becomes, it becomes a much more, much more complex predicament. Let me just give you one example. Well, in this case, this is in the community next to this one. Uh, there were, well, well, you've seen the other photos, so the other photos of the guy with the Fubai sign. The, um, there was a, a series of contestations. Of, uh, and uh, at a certain point, it, it all happened within the compound. And there was only once that they decided to go out with this, with this, um, 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 
signs and, uh, and try to reach the local government. And that's the only time that the police intervened. So the only time that the repression took over was when this became a public event and not a private event. So I think what the government has done is privatizing some of the governance is also creating the opportunity for people to, pr if you want, defend those privatized interests. So, you know, that, that's, that's, um, that's one of the ways in which I think, it, even the, f the uh, uh, internet fora that I found tend to be divided uh, community by community. So if you want to become a member, of, a member of the forum, the local forum, then you have to be a resident in that community. If you want to, you know, and then there are, of course, bigger ways of, of communicating. But it, it still maintains this sort of a cellular, cellular structure. And this is, this is one of the ways in which China's been governed for a long time. So, time for one last question. Uh, my name is C.T. Tang. I'm a local resident. Uh, actually, you may have answered part of my question. Uh, my question is, uh, within the gated community or neighborhood, does the government allow any formal or informal uh, committees yeah. that represent the interests of the residents? Yeah. But in this particular case, how does the decision make to tear down this wall? That is they represent the interests of the whole community? That and is can you interesting. A little bit in this particular case, is it a okay. Um, this 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 is a very interesting case. But to start with, the first question is: so uh, private communities, and now most of the others as well, they have something that's called the homeowner committee. So they, which is elected, which is an elected uh, representative body. Uh, it works in very different ways in different, very different places. In some places, it's entirely controlled by the private management company. In some other cases, it's uh, it's uh, you know it's very vocal and uh, and uh, um, really a representation of the interest of the groups. In this case, uh, the uh, homeowner committee was considered as. Uh, yeah, sort of doing something but not being able to do enough. And so many more came out and decided that something needed to happen. But as you can see, the organization had already started quite a bit earlier because they all have the same T-shirts. They, they, you know, they, they printed the T-shirts with slogans and they started collecting money, etc. And uh, so when they decided to do this, they do this, uh, they do this through, uh, they, they called everyone to, uh, to the wall saying this is the time we're going to tear it down and that was on the internet was done on the internet on the f internet forum that they had within the community um, so in this case it involved much more than the than the homeowner committee formally the homeowner committee has only one power which is signing the contract with the management company the only thing that they can do is to fire the management company and get another one that's basically the only so that's the only interaction that they're responsible for they have no other political um, uh, capacity to represent the interests of, uh, of the um, um, of the residents. Yeah, in, in this case, it was funny. I actually have a have a final photo that I should probably show, uh, which is this one. So at the end, this is this is a, almost ten years later. Uh, this is what they built. As you can see, it's not a very pretty garden, uh, but, they, but they put up this, this uh, Shouwanjian, which is, you know, sort of the garden of vigilance. Um, and so, and, but they were very proud of the, what they had achieved. Actually, when I was living there, I purchased one of the trees, but I think it died about a week later because the soil was so horrible. Uh, but, you know, so th the whole process was very important for the community because the conflict itself has actually created community in ways that otherwise, you know, this atomized communities do not do. So...
again, maybe that's maybe it's good on, if I finish on a positive yeah. note. What, what, what does the slogan on the uh, yellow T-shirt say? I, I cannot remember that, you know, but uh, there was a, a series of a series of uh, slogans, and one was "Give us our green back." I can't remember the one on the T-shirt, but it was, you know, this "Give us our green back." It was written on the wall, all over the wall. Okay, well, we're beyond the bewitching now, so please join me in thanking Regent for your Thank you.